my name is Tolu Odulisi. I've been going to Mercy Hill for about five years now, and by God's grace, we will be given the, going through the word together today, right? So, um, we will be in Matthew chapter six, from verse one to eighteen. If you don't have Bibles, you have the ushers coming in, so please just get one from them. And if you don't have a Bible, please keep that. Or if you know someone that doesn't have a Bible, please keep it and give it to them. So we will be in Matthew chapter 6 from verse 1 to 18. I know you guys are used to Nick going very deep, spending like three weeks on four verses. No, I'm going to be painting broad strokes. (laughs) Matthew chapter 6 from verse 1 to 18. I'll just read chapter one, oh, verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before all the people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. False. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not, left it, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, And shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others your trespasses, sorry, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, again and again we come to your feet to learn from you. And our prayer today is that you will open our hearts. And that your word will be like hammer that crushes the hardness of our hearts. It will be like fire that melts the steel of our hearts so that we might truly be open to receiving what you have to give us today. We pray that as we sit 
under your teaching and it will be you teaching that our hearts will be ready we will be open that you would allow questions to bubble up from our souls and we'll be able to place that before you and that you will answer those questions and you will meet us where we are and you would at least open our eyes to see the next step we should take and so God we pray that you will be the one speaking and that your words will reach every single one of us in Jesus name Amen Alright, like you said, again, you guys are used to Nick spending three weeks on four. Who spends three weeks on four verses? <laughs> but that's Nick for you. <laughs> Today, like you said, I'll be painting sort of broad brush strokes to Matthew chapter 6 from verse 1 to 18. And would like, we'll try to organize my thoughts on the, a couple of headings, which will be in your bulletin. And, and the title of the sermon is The Question of Identity. So what I want to do today, even as we delve into this, right, is for you to be to be asking those questions around your identity and what you base your identity on, right, and seeing what the scripture says, and hopefully God meets us where we are. So let me start out by giving uh, a context to where we are, right? So uh, where we are right now is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, right? So the backstory to that is Jesus just started his ministry. Right, he's been doing a couple miracles. He's called his apostles, and he goes up. There's a bunch of people gathering around, and he goes up the mountain and he starts speaking. Right, and when you say mountain, don't think of like Everest, probably a hill. Right, <laughs> so he goes up the mountain and he starts speaking. And the idea you get, the sense you get, is he's kind of laying out what our life should be like. It's almost like the state of union, right, and saying. This is who God has called us to be. This is who God is calling us to be, right? That's sort of what he's laying out there. And going through Matthew chapter 5, uh, the key thing he's doing is he's, he's sort of highlighting to us that the, our actions are not really the focal point. It's the heart behind the actions, right? So he, he's coming and he's revamping our idea of what the blessed life looks like, right? And that's where you have the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted, right? And funny enough, at least for me, the things he says are blessed are usually the things I run away from. I'm like, no, I don't want to be poor. Like, no. <laughs> but uh, that, that already starts getting to the heart, right? To see what's in our heart, to see what we base our identity, our hope, our security on, right? And then he also challenges our understanding of love, right? And of lust. And of anger. And again and again, he's going back to this theme of your heart, right? Not as much the actions. The actions matter, but more importantly so, what's beneath the actions, right? So that's the context so far. And then he, he makes a statement where he tells the, the disciples, all those that are gathered, that for you to enter the kingdom of God, this is Matthew 5.20, that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Right now, if you if you're sort of living where they are living at that time and you're in their skin, the first thing that pops up to your head is, oh no, that's not possible, right? I, I know the Pharisees and scribes they get a bad rap now, <laughs> and I get that, but when you think back, think of Paul, Saul, right? Look at the zeal coming out of him, even before he was converted, right? You you, you could see that zeal for God, misguided, yes. Right. And so when Jesus is saying your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, the disciples are saying, yeah, that's not going to happen. 
in terms of how is this going to happen, right? And so as Jesus is setting for this new way of life, what, what I believe he's trying to do is to make the disciples get to the end of themselves, for them to see that by their own abilities, by their own power, they can't accomplish this righteousness. It's just not possible. In, in a sense, he's reminding them that they do need a savior, which is himself. Right? And so he's going to guide them to that uh, realization. So th- that's context. And w- wherever you might be today, right? whatever might be going on, uh, what I'm hoping you would do is to hold in one hand the things you're going through, the questions, the thoughts, uh, what you're praying through, right? And then hold in the other hand whatever God might say to you today, right? Uh, one thing I want to set is for you to know that because you have a loving and good and gracious and sovereign Father, everything that is happening to you, Everything you are going through, right, he is able to use that in some way and bring some good out of it, bring good out of it truly, eventually, right? And so let that help settle your hearts a bit, even as we get more into this. So like I said, I want to uh, highlight a couple points, and I'm going to just sort of summarize my thoughts on that forehead, and you have that in your uh, in your bulletin. So let me start off. So Matthew, in Matthew 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Uh, the subtitle here is Surpassing the Scribes and Pharisees. So the first question you have to ask is, why is Jesus talking to them about, about not practicing their righteousness? Right. In front of people. And again, we have to go back to what I said. Right. He had set this impossible standard that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so in warning them from Matthew 6, 1, what he's trying to tell them is that. What he's trying to tell them is this, that um, the superior righteousness that is expected of you is not simply about your actions. He's trying to warn them of the hypocrisy of self-righteousness. The hypocrisy of depending on our own acts, of trying to show other people what we can do. You see, it's our tendency to rely on our good acts as a basis of our right standing before God. Right? And it really is our tendency to try to validate ourselves based on those good acts. And even though Jesus has set that impossible standard, the natural reaction is for the apostles or the disciples to start thinking, okay, so how can I surpass? The scribes and the Pharisees, right? And Jesus is trying to once again sort of bring them back to this idea of it has more to do with your heart. So the theme I want to draw out from just this section is that the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees is more about the motives and the reasons of your heart, right? The reasons behind your actions. Said in another way, the righteousness that Jesus advocates for is more about who you are becoming. It's not simply the actions, but who are you becoming? And the end goal of that is to become more and more like Christ. Right? The end goal or the theme of that righteousness is becoming like Christ. And so in the subsequent examples we will see, because Jesus gives like three set examples where he basically repeats the same warnings with giving of alms, prayer, and fasting, you will see that Jesus keeps zoning in after the motives of our heart. 
right? He keeps zoning in, keeps going back to that idea of it's not just the act, it's the heart behind the act, right? And so a natural question that will come to mind is, why again is Jesus so focused on the heart? Why is it that that is one of the key things he's going after? Again, if you look through Matthew chapter 5 and even into chapter 6, basically the theme of the Sermon of the heart, of the, on the Mount, he's going after the heart, right? And not just going after the heart in terms of the normal activities you do, but even for the religious activities, he's going after the heart, right? So the next section, the praise of men. See, as a people, well, let me talk about myself, <laughs> as to look. <laughs> I tend to care about what other people think of me. Right? It's like this constant disease. Like you see, we, we strive and we work hard to present an image that represents us in the best possible light. So we just don't want to be good. We want to be fantastic. Right? You just don't want to be, yeah, you did well. Like, no, I want to be greatest of all time. Right? There's just that narrative Right, that pushes us, that urges us, right? And, and even when we've achieved great things, the moment we hear someone else is better, we can't sleep. It's kind of, how could they be better? I'm better than that guy. Right? It's like we just can't sleep. And, and this is a disease that affects us wherever we are, young, advanced in age, whether you're starting out your career, you've been in your career for a while, you're single, you're married, Parents, grandparents, it's just always that comparison. Oh, my kids are better. Right? And so whether it has to do with our looks, our grades in school, our career accomplishments, our family, what our kids are doing, there's always that sense to, to get this praise of men. Right? It's like we have this ravenous hunger within us right? to get that praise of men. And let, let me just read a couple verses from Scripture. Where Jesus points to the same desire for the praise of men. Right? John chapter 12 from verse 42 to 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities, think the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, believed in him, Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And here's the key. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Right? Let me read Matthew 15, 7 to 11. This is Jesus speaking. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then, and he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a, a person, but it, it is what comes out of the mouth, basically what comes out of your heart. Right? And again, he's going back to that desire that we have for the praise of men. Right? And so the question I have to pose here is, where is your need for acceptance? Or your fear of rejection that makes you compromise on what you believe about God or on your values. Where do you crave that adulation of men? Right. Now, for me, 
I find this honestly every single time Nick tells me, oh, Tolo, I want you to teach. Because the first thing that comes, I'm like, oh, man, I got to get a nice quote. Misha, everybody reads the quote, and I'm like, yes, that's good, Tolo. That was very good. Right? Sometimes I'm thinking, like, God, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> like, I have no clue. And the first thing I'm thinking of is, like, oh, yeah, let me go find a story. It's always easier to teach about stories. You know, it's fine. But I have to remind myself, like, look, you're just a mouthpiece. Right? This is about God. This is not about you. Right? And, and in other areas, I'm sure, we always have to fight those thoughts. Right? And, it's, and the thoughts will always come. It's what you do with them. Right? It, it's how you present it back to God. And so the question becomes, where in your lives do you, do you see that seesaw motion? Right? Where you want to do what's right, but because of that hunger for the praise of men, uh, you compromise. Are you giving to that? It might be the fear of rejection. Right? So that, that's just something to be thinking about, right? You see, the praise of men, it, it perverts, when that is your focus, it, it perverts your actions. It, it perverts even godly acts. And then it renders them null and void. The challenge, though, with the praise of men is that we have this capacity, this great capacity for self-deception. And, you know, self-deception, the idea is you yourself are deceived. So a lot of times you think, oh, I'm doing this for God. But in reality, you're not. Right? You're doing it to get that pat on the back, to be recognized, to be known. Right? And, and that's the challenge with the praise of men. And this is why we need God's help. And, and this burden of hungering for the praise of men, which we've seen in those scriptures, and we will go back to them again, right? It's, it's a terrible burden, right? To, to, to illustrate this, I want to read what A.W. Tozer says in his famed book, The Pursuit of Men. I think this is chapter 9, called Meekness and Humility or something like that. But let me read this. Let us examine our burden. It is altogether an interior one. It attacks the heart and the mind and renders the body and reaches the body only from within. First, there is the burden of pride. Right? Beneath that praise of men right, is pride. Right? So first, there is the burden of pride. The labor of self-love is a heavy one indeed. Think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightingly of you. I like that word, slightingly. As long as you set yourself up as a little God to which you must be loyal, there will be those who would delight to offer affront to your idol. How then can you hope to have inward peace? So the heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of friend and enemy, will never let the mind have rest. Continue this fight throughout the, through the years, and the burden will become intolerable. Yet, the children of God are carrying this burden continually, challenging every word spoken against them, cringing under every criticism, smarting under each fancied slight, tossing sleepless if another is preferred before them. To such a burden as this is not necessary to bear. Jesus calls us to his rest, and meekness is his method. The meek man cares not at all 
who is greater than he, for he has long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. He develops toward himself a kindly sense of humor and learns to say, Oh, so you have been overlooked. They have placed someone else before you. They have whispered that you are pretty small stuff after all. I I wouldn't like that. Sam's pretty small stuff. (laughs) And now you feel hurt. Because the world is saying about you the very things you have been saying about yourself. Only yesterday, you were telling God that you were nothing. A mere worm of the dust. Yet, because others are saying that about you, there is that rise in you, right? To fight back. Where is our consistency? Humbling, right? Very. See, I see see shades of myself in every point he made. But the real issue behind the praise of men is a question of identity. Right? Beneath that longing for the praise of men is the question of identity. It's about how we value ourselves, what we see as our worth. Right? And this is why Jesus goes back again to tackling the heart. Right, he always goes back to that, and and you see that as a theme to throughout his ministry. Really, it's always about the heart, and so Jesus focuses so much on the heart because that is where Satan seeks to attack us. Right, that is always a strategy. He seeks to attack your heart, what you believe about God, because it is out of your heart that your life flows. Right, Proverbs four twenty three. Right? That's why you should protect the, the instruction to protect your heart diligently, right? Because out of it flows forth the issues of life. Right? Because if Satan can attack or own your heart or corrupt what you believe, right, he can dictate your actions. See, if we are to enjoy the abundant provision of God, if we are to walk in our identity as children of God, if we are to become Christ-like, exhibiting that righteousness that surpasses, the scribes and the Pharisees, which is more of who you are becoming, becoming more and more Christ-like. If we are to do all of that, we cannot be ignorant of how Satan seeks to attack us. So I'm going to take a quick segue and talk about that real quick. See, Satan has no direct power over you. He doesn't. So to get you to do what he wants, he has to deceive you. Right? It, it's always the strategy. You go back to the garden. It's always that idea, right? Did God really say this? If you do this, you would then become like God. What he was truly doing was he was hitting Eve with the idea that God is not after your good. So you have to rise up and take your good in your own hands. The same idea with Christ in the wilderness, right? See, you're hungry. Turn the stones to bread. It's the idea of if your father cared about you, why would you be hungry? Like, take power. Right? So that's how Satan always attacks us, right? So if he's to oppose us, he has to always go at our heart. Let, let me read something for first, from 1 John chapter 2, from verse 15 to 16. Right? It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So, in that scripture, when it says the world, it's not talking about the physical, material world of nature. No, 
It's not talking, it's not even talking about some of the great things in human culture. No, the world there means the mindset, the values, the ideas, the perspectives that are opposed to God. Right. And in some of your translation, rather than the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, you see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. They're saying the same thing. It's just that nowadays we we associate lust primarily with sexual immorality. But lust actually just means your desire. It means excessive desires, right? Desires that have gone out of bounds. Right? So what I want to emphasize here, first of all, is that desires in and of themselves are not bad, right? We need desires, right? Uh, quite frankly, desires are critical in defining your passions, uh, your talents, your giftings, probably where you're going, right? So desires are not bad. It's always when they go beyond um, the, the normal confines of God's will. So what I'm trying to highlight here is that the enemy attacks us to three primary spiritual dynamics, you could call it. The desires of the eyes. I want to look good. And that looking good doesn't have to be physical. It's just what is my reputation, the recognition. The desires of the flesh, I want everything for myself. I want it to go my way. Right? I want it for myself. I want it to be done how I want it to be done. And pride, that's pretty straightforward, right? Pride in possessions, right? So the strategy of the enemy is to always take what is good and he twists it primarily through these three things that we've talked about, right? And so in the subsequent three examples we will see, In this passage, what we will see is Satan is corrupting the normal desire to please God and turning that into a desire to please men. Really a desire to please ourselves, right? So that we get that praise of men, right? So that's why I did that segue, so that we just see that this is how the enemy usually seeks to attack us, right? Now, having seen how Satan attacks us, let us delve into those examples, right? And I want to draw out a couple of things. So this is the third bullet point. Um, so going back to Matthew 6, chapter 1, um, let me read that. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Right. So that scripture sets the stage, right? and Jesus is going to highlight three chief acts of Jewish piety, right? giving of alms, prayer, right? and fasting. And we're going to quickly touch on that. So the structure that Jesus goes through is that there's a warning, right? He first sets a warning to not leave for the praise of men. In those three examples we're going to go through. And the next thing he does is he gives a guarantee that those who leave for the praise of men will get the empty praise of men. That would be the reward. And then he seeks to reorient us back to that desire to please God. He sort of shifts our mindset away from men and away from the outward back to God, right? And then there is the promise of reward. And we'll touch on all of that. So in looking at those three examples, right? Giving of alms, prayer, and fasting, I want to organize, I want to draw two primary points there. So let me read Matthew 6. I'm not going to read 1 to 18. I'm going to read specific uh, verses. So I'm going to read verse 2, verse 5, verse 16, right? Which matches to... A portion of the giving of alms, the prayer, and the fasting. So verse 2. First, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for the love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 16. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Uh, the word hypocrite there originally meant an actor, right? Someone that is acting. That's the original meaning of that word, hypocrite, right? And so what I also want to highlight, though, is that for Jesus to use that word hypocrite, he's talking to us. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to us, right? He's talking to me. He's talking to you. He's talking to Mercy Hill. He's talking to the church as a whole, right? And, and what is evident, again, is that we see that desire uh, for our efforts to be recognized, that thirst, right, in those verses, right? Jesus clearly points that out. And sadly enough, when we desire the praise of men, that's all we get, the empty praise of men. But here's what we know, though, right? The praise of men is primarily based on this idea of what have you done for me lately? Like, yeah, you did all that great stuff, that's great, but today, what have you done? Right? So it's always that rat race, right? You always have to keep up. You always have to... Uh, prove yourself again, right? It, and this is how our identity gets formed on performance and production, right? Because we're on that rat race to prove something, to show that I'm good, to show that I'm the best in my class, to show something else. It's just never enough. There's just always something else to do. Said another way, this is how we are forming our identity based on the desires of the eyes. I want to look good. The desires of the flesh, I want to be recognized. I want to have a stellar reputation. So hopefully you're seeing how Satan is using those desires to, again, deceive us. Because he doesn't have direct control, right? So he has to deceive to make us do what he wants us to do. See, Jesus invites us to carry a different yoke, right? And he shows that example himself, right? So he, he, he invites us to leave that rat race. And to come to him, and he says in Matthew eleven twenty to 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, right? And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, right? And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So unless we accept the invitation of Christ, we keep running. We keep running. And with each act, our identity keeps getting cemented on what people say about us, on our reputation, on performance, on production. And because your identity is being cemented on that, that in and of itself will become a slave driver that continues to make you to perform, to want to get that praise again, to want to have that stellar reputation, to want to prove over and over again that you are simply the stuff of legends. I had to throw that in there. <laughs> so that's the, so the first point I want to call out there is the praise of men leads to emptiness. Right. The second point I want to point out is this reorientation back to God. Right. So Matthew 6, I'm going to read verse 3, verse 6, uh, 7 to 8, 17 to 18. Again, going based on those three examples. Right. Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand Know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, 
Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Let me jump to verse 17. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you. Now, there's a clear theme here of um, the public showing, the public manifestation, uh, the public just outward facing showing of what you're doing versus just a, a secret privacy, right? There's just that distinction that we can see, right? And that public showing, obviously, is to garner the praise of men or sometimes the sympathy of men. Right? We just want to know, like, yeah, I'm going through stuff, man. You know how much stuff I'm going through? <laughs> All right? And so it shows up sometimes when maybe someone, maybe in a religious or more in a spiritual context, when someone is talking about how, you know, they're reading through Psalm 91 and they just uh, memorize verse 1 and 2. And then you just walk by, like, yeah, yeah, I, I memorized Psalm 91, you know, five years ago. It took me 10 minutes. Right, it's it's when you are parents and you want to just subtly put in there. Oh yeah, oh your kids are doing that. Ah, oh, my kids went through that like three years ago and they did it quick. You know it was easy. Uh, come to me, I'll tell you how it's done. Right, but what Christ is calling us to here is the reorientation to God. Right, that God is the one we seek to please. We live, we move, we have our being. In God. Right? God is the centerpiece of our lives. He becomes that frame of reference. Right? It's not any more simply by what we do. It's, it's about God. It's why we do it. It's back to that theme of the motives, uh, the, the reason, the why beneath our actions. Right? And so our value, when, when we adopt that posture, our value is no longer in what we can do. Our worth is not based on our performance. Rather, our value and our worth is based on the fact that we are the beloved children of God. That's it. Like Romans 8, 32 to 35. I just want to read this to to help us see our value and our worth. To see that it's not based on anything we do, but simply based on the sacrifice of Christ. And through him, the adoptions as children of God. So Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who then shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Rather than justifying yourself, rather than proving that you are the stuff, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised for our sins, right? And I love this part. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Who or what then shall separate us from the love of God? This is what your identity is based on. right? If God in all his glory, right? If he accepts you just as you are based on the sacrifice of Christ, you are his beloved child. That's your identity. Right? You don't need to prove anything to anyone else, right? In Ephesians 1, from verse 4 to 5, it says this, He, Christ, 
chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before we even existed. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Before you were born, before anything was in existence, he chose you. And that is your value and your worth. Now, there is also this concept of reward in, 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 the, in what we read, right? So on one hand, there is the empty reward of the praises of men, right? And then when Jesus reorients us back to God, he talks about the reward that the Father gives, right? Now, I, I don't know what the specificity of that reward is, right? And it could range from anything. It could be material blessings. It could be anything, honestly. But what I want to draw out is this. The gift that God ultimately gives is himself. Right. And the reason he gives that is because that is the greatest gift he can give you. So whatever that reward might be, I know the core or the foundation of that reward is himself. The intimacy with him, the relationship, the deepening relationship with him. Right. Now, why, why isn't the gift just simply health, wealth, life, which are all great things. Don't get me wrong. They're great. And we want that and we pray for that. But why isn't the gift simply just that? Simply because those things are temporary. They are always transient. They are transitory in nature. Right? On this side of life here, there are no permanent foundations. Right? There is no secure hope. There isn't. Apart from Christ. There is nothing like that. Everything is passing away and will eventually pass away and that is why god has to give you the gift of himself right that is always the reward that god gives right that is always what he longs for and what he's after right and so in god we have that eternal hope and security that we long for because honestly nobody wants to be running the rat race like nobody right what we all want is just to be accepted as where we are right Nobody wants to be running that rat race and I always have to prove that I'm this or I'm that and I'm the stuff. Like Nobody wants that. And so what we long for is in God, is in Christ. right? And how did we get there? Through the sacrifice of Christ. Right? Who was delivered up for our trespasses and then raised up for our justification. Right? Romans 4, I think, verse 22. So, when our identity is based on the fact that we are the beloved children of God, we can more rest or more readily rest our head on the pillow of God's sovereignty. Right? Doesn't mean stuff isn't hard. Of course it is. Doesn't mean we don't struggle. We do. But we can always come back to rest our head on the pillow of God's sovereignty. Now, having said all of this and how our identity is that we are the beloved children of God. How do we actually lay hold on that? Right. What are some of the practical things we can do to lay hold on that? Right. So going back to the last uh, sub-bullet there. Interwoven into the three, um, into the passage we read, and those three examples, right, which is um, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, Jesus gives or he prescribes three main directives to us to help us in this process right to help us with our heart to help us make sure we are reoriented to god 
The first one is prayer. Right now, again, since Nick spent four weeks on prayer, I'm not going to say anything on prayer. <laughs> what I'm going to say though is, uh, please look at those sermons. I think they are really great. Uh, but what I would say about prayer is this: prayer is that avenue for us to form a relationship with God. Right? Prayer is not simply about a list of what you want, although that is valid. Right, And we do ask God what we want because after all, we are the beloved children of God. He's our father. So we do ask. But the point of prayer or the framework of prayer is a relationship with God. Prayer actually primarily is a means of grace that God has given us to align our hearts with his heart. So that even as we pray about things and even as we seek things, and he might say yes, and sometimes he might say no, and sometimes he might withhold things. But the idea of all of that is you continually see his faithfulness and you are continually yielded to him. Hence that acronym that Nick gave, ASK. So we adore him. The more we see him, we exalt him. And because of that, we are more willing to surrender to him, which is the S. Right? And then out of that adoration and that surrender, we knock, we ask, and we can trust in him. So the next thing I want to highlight that Jesus points to is this theme of forgiveness, right? And I'm not going to be able to cover all of forgiveness, but I want to just highlight a couple of things, right? So in verse 14 to 15, uh, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What empowers your forgiving other people is the fact that you have experienced the forgiveness of God, right? That, that's what that scripture is about, right? But what, when you truly understand the extent to which God has forgiven you and the grace he has offered, your disposition will increasingly become that of being willing to forgive. It doesn't mean you forgive instantly. No, right? It, it doesn't always mean that. Sometimes forgiveness is a process and a lot of times it will be a process and it will be something you have to do repeatedly. What it does mean though is that with the grace of God, God will help you to forgive. As you open yourself before him, right? And you're willing to have that conversation with him, he will help. He will help. And what you're doing with forgiveness, you're not you're not advocating that what the offender did is right, not at all, right? You're not legitimizing that not at all what you're doing is you're handing over the hurt the pain the situation into the hands of god trusting that he will make all things right when i say make all things right it doesn't necessarily mean he will punish the offender i used to think like that like, yeah go get him god yeah, go get her god <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that what it does mean is that god in his sovereignty, in his graciousness, in his love. And he would take all of that and make it right. And I don't know what right is, even for the offender, right? and even for you as the offended, but he will make all of that right. So let me quickly touch on what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting. Forgiveness doesn't mean you just instantly trust the person. No. Right? Forgiveness is about entrusting things into God's hand. Forgiveness is primarily 
about restoring your relationship with God. Right? Forgiveness is a it's an act of worship, so to say, before God. It is you placing that hurt, that pain which you're going through into the hands of God. So let me touch on the last thing Jesus speaks about here. And it's this, um, I'm going to call it this discipline or this practice of secrecy. Right? In those, in the scripture, in the text we read, right, there's always this idea of the outward public showing versus what you do in secret. Right? And it's a theme uh, that is repeated. So before I delve into that, let me just say, there is nothing wrong with you giving something in public or praying for someone in public, right? It's always about your heart, right? It's always about what's beneath your heart. But there is nothing wrong in maybe you're fasting and you're asking a brother to join in the prayer or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But it's always about what's your heart? What's the motivation behind exposing that, right? So just want to make that clear. And we also know that Jesus talked about us being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, right? He talked about a city on a hill cannot be hidden, right? He talked about those things. He talked about let your light so shine before the world, right? So that men will see all of that and they'll give glory to God. You see that orientation always back to God. So it's not necessarily about whether you do things in public or not. Quite frankly, the more you grow in God and the more God empowers you, you will have to hide Right, you would have to run away from the public expressions. Not that you wouldn't have the opportunity; it would always be there. It would be more of you, not wanting that as much. So the call here is always to, with an eye towards glorifying God and not ourselves, right? And and this goes against, I mean, pretty much everything you're taught, right? Like take performance evaluations in the corporate world, right? That's the time to show you the stuff of the legends. Like, don't say, oh, yeah, I just did this. Like, no, 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 no. What I did was I organized this enterprise-wide effort and I led everything single-handedly, right? You want to show you did stuff. That's what you're taught. Like, be confident. Stand up. Chest out. Right? Speak up. And, and there is some good to that, right? But Jesus invites us into a different way. Right, and I'm please, when you do your performance evaluation, write good things about yourself. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not advocating for you to not write good things about yourself. But I know you get what I'm saying. Don't don't blow it out of proportion. Um so Jesus invites us into this way of secrecy, and it's a way that he himself fully embraces, right? Let, let me show you that oftentimes Jesus will heal someone and will tell them what? Don't tell anyone. Right? Oftentimes, Jesus himself would withdraw into lonely places to pray. See, there are even sometimes you see him trying to sneak away from the crowd because he knows they're going to try to get a hold of him. There's a situation where they're trying to enthrone him as king. Right? And he had to sneak away. So even Jesus embraces this path. So to help tame our hunger for the praise of men, for fame, or even for justifying ourselves, See, we abstain from causing our good deeds and qualities to be known. Right? We may even take steps to cover our tracks, as long as it's not deceitful or sinful. Let, let me read you a, a beautiful description of secrecy by Dallas Willard uh, from the book Spirit of the Disciplines. Secrecy, rightly practiced, 
enables us to place our public relations department entirely in the hands of God. The same God will lit our candles so that we could be the light of the world, not so that we could hide under a bushel, which is Matthew 5, 14 to 16. In secrecy, we allow him, God, to decide when our deeds will be known and when our light will be noticed. Secrecy at best teaches us, teaches love and humility before God and others. And that love and humility encourages us to see our associates in the best possible light. This is interesting. Even to the point of our hoping that they will do better and appear better than us. Yeah, that's not me. Like, no. Right? Imagine that. That we hope to see our associates in the best possible light. Even to the point of our hoping they will do better and appear better than us. It actually becomes possible for us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility we consider others more important or more significant than ourselves. As Philippians 2, 3 advises. And what a relief that can be. If you want to experience the flow of love as never before, the next time you're in a competitive situation, pray that the others around you will be more outstanding, more praised, more used of God than yourself. Really pull for them and rejoice for their successes. And that's a hard prayer. That's a really tough prayer. And here's the interesting thing. If we, Christians, we're universally to do this, to practice Philippians 2, 3, right? Which is, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than you are, consider them more significant. If we, Christians, we universally practice this, then the earth will soon be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. It will be an amazing experience, right? As you think of that. So what I've just described just seems like utopia. Like, who's going to do that? Like, who's really going to pray for someone else to be better than them? (laughs) But this is what God is inviting us to, here and now. Right, wherever we may be, this is what he's inviting us to. And so what empowers secrecy is that we place our desires into the hand of God. We do not simply abandon our desires, but we place them into the hand of a loving, a sovereign, a gracious Father. So we practice secrecy in faith, depending on God. Now there is uncertainty with secrecy, right? Because shoot, I might not get noticed, right? I might not get promoted and all these other things, right? But that uncertainty is actually a means of grace. It is part of how God transforms us into Christ-likeness. Again, going back to the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, right? This is why God would say, to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you because in your weakness, my strength is made known. Right? When we see God meet our needs because we have asked him alone in secret, see, it empowers our faith. Right? It strengthens our confidence in God. And then it reminds us again and again that our identity is based on the simple fact that we are the beloved children of God. 
So in conclusion, right? you are not your reputation. You are not what people are saying about you. You definitely are not what you possess. Right? You are the beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God. Right? Ephesians 1.5 In love, God predestined you. Predestined you for adoption into His family through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is who you are. A beloved child of God. Amen. Let's pray. So Father we thank you and we bless you. Uh, we give you praise God. For being reminded that we are your beloved children. That our identity is based on the sacrifice of Christ. That in love, you have predestined us to be your children through what Jesus Christ did in accordance to your purpose. And you did all of this before the foundations of the world. And Father, my prayer is that you will help us to continually bring our hearts, our desires before you. To come to you when we stumble. To learn to wear this world loosely and to carry ourselves lightly. That we have a real and intent field preference, a real and intent field preference for your will, for your purpose, for what you want. That we learn to not simply throw away our desires, but to abandon them, to leave them into the loving, the caring hands of a good a gracious and a sovereign father in Jesus name Amen